Welcome to Outdoor Adventures with Jason. Each week, I bring the world of hunting, fishing, and conservation to you. From the great hunting and fishing opportunities found in the Americas to the dream safaris located on the dark continent beyond. I'll introduce you to those who are already out in the field living every outdoor enthusiast's dream, as well as outfitters and gear manufacturers that can make those dreams your reality. Welcome to this week's episode of Outdoor Adventures with Jason. I'm very excited today because I've got one of the just absolute stand-up guys in the outdoor industry on with me. I've got Jay Allen Smith. Allen, how are you doing this morning? Doing great. I appreciate you coming on the show, and I've got a copy of your new book here, Adventures in Rugged Places, and I want to read a little brief passage out of it because I think this really sets the tone for your show and, uh, and the humor that you involve in it. In the introduction, you wrote, I still have a number of goals I have not yet achieved, and I'm working towards completing them all. That is if I don't run out of time first. I want to play lead guitar with Eric Clapton, go to the moon, stay on a bull at the PBR rodeo for eight seconds, have one more great hunting dog, shoot a free-range white-tailed deer scoring over 220 inches, and live to be 95 years old and then be killed by a jealous husband. The easiest one of those goals to achieve will be going to the moon. <laughs> that, I thought, really encapsulated not only the humor I found in the book when I read it, because with hunting adventures, things are bound to go wrong, and you just have to laugh. You can't let it ruin them. But also the humor that I found in your show. And tell me... Where did the concept for Rugged Adventures come from? Well, our whole point was literally sitting around a fire in Africa one night, a couple buddies, and one thing led to another, and maybe there was a cocktail involved, and we started talking about some of the shows that are on TV. You know, as probably anyone has attested, there's a bit too many shows, in my opinion, that are from a tree stand and aiming downhill. You know, you're whacking a whitetail, and that's kind of the whole show. Everybody does the same thing, and so... I remember being somewhat dared by my buddies that, well, if you think, uh, you know, you can do it better, maybe you should do it. And so I thought, okay, let's give it a try. And luckily for me, I'd already been hunting quite a bit around the world. And so when we did get into the whole TV production and that, I was at least familiar with the hunting end and what we could and couldn't do and knew the animals and the places to go and where I thought it might be great filming. And so we just started doing it from there. Part of the whole TV thing is you've got to find a niche that works for you. And obviously the tough guy stuff has already been taken up by Ivan and Jim Shockey. You can't get any better, you know, tough guy stuff than that. The whitetail area was already saturated. So we thought, well, let's go on some rugged expeditions, but at the same time, you know, have some fun with it and hopefully get to use some of our music and our humor in the show as well. You know, it's it's been working great and I'm really happy. I, I think that one of the concepts we've tried to work on is that, you know, we all work our butts off day in and day out so we can go hunting. It's fun. It's supposed to be fun. It's what we do for enjoyment. And I think sometimes that's been missed in the past with uh, a lot of folks that go on trips and it's all about whacking the new number one or it's all about this or that and instead of enjoying ourselves and really making it into a, a fun experience and so that's what we try and show in the show that yeah we might be doing tough guy stuff we might be facing buffalo but uh you know there's probably some laughs involved somewhere along the week so that's our that's our concept well and you've certainly pulled it off and for anybody that wants to see some very funny clips head over to the Rugged Expedition YouTube channel. We'll touch more on that in a bit, but Alan, you've got some just fantastic items and, and funny clips out there just in the outtakes and your music videos. But as you look at the hunting, 
Is there any one particular hunt you've done, the one that stands out in your mind the most, uh, that you recall easily anytime you talk about hunting? You know, it's it's probably overall uh, polar bear hunting. It's the most extreme, difficult trip you can do. I did it in the 90s with the dog team. Right before you could bring them back, there was that gap where you know, we couldn't bring it back to the United States and did it the old fashioned way with the Eskimos and with bad equipment and, you know, a lousy little tent and a Coleman stove was the only heat we had. And not to make it too rugged, but uh, literally was out on the ice for 10 days. And, you know, it was as extreme as you can get. And uh, of course, you know, with those bears, they're not afraid of anything. They uh, look at anything they see on the ice as something to eat. I was able to kill the bear at about 12 to 15 yards. And it was really something to see. Incredible sight and to be able to watch him and all that. So probably the polar bear, you know, being charged by a Cape Buffalo uh, that was on one of our episodes a while back, which was not planned. We don't uh, tease them. We don't try and get buffalo to charge. Uh, you don't need to. And I'd rather shoot them humanely as quickly as possible and get it over with. But that one will always stand out in my mind. Uh, them coming full tilt and you kill them at eight yards, you know, with a lucky shot between the eyes that was uh, really something. Is that the episode where you were up in the mountainside hunting them? Exactly. The uh, Mount Galai was the name of the area. I don't ever want to have to do that again, I'll tell you. I can certainly understand that. And to all of you folks that have hunted the buffalo, you, you all can give me a story of having the, the close encounter with them. I've said it before and I'll say it again. To do that, you got to carry an extra set of clothes with you because you're going to need to clean yourself up after something like that. Yeah, that's that'll rattle you. Uh, it was kind of funny that after that happened, uh, you know, you take the pictures and you're shaking hands and everybody's excited and all the trackers, you know, were laughing because, you know, they were there and jumping out of the way at the same time. And about, uh, I probably took two hours, all of a sudden it set in what had happened. And now your hands were shaking and your stomach didn't feel right. And you needed a beer at lunchtime after all that. So it was... Uh, quite the day and uh it's, it's at the time it doesn't rattle you but i found that the adrenaline rush later was uh or the come down from the adrenaline rush was uh quite an event well and did i read somewhere remember right that you've done over 30 trips to africa uh no it's more like uh, 90 oh wow <laughs> Well, maybe in uh, one of the earlier books, that was probably the number, but uh, no, now I'm, I spend a good three months a year over there. So, Oh, all right. Well, in the book, one of the chapters that I read and I thought was really a neat one was on the Maasai Mountain Leopard, mm. where you broke your leopard bad luck. You gave a real good rundown in that, but for the listeners, tell a little bit about that leopard and what that meant to you. Everybody seems to have an animal, if you get out and hunt enough, that's the bad luck one, that you just can't seem to get one. For me, it's always been leopard. Lots of people go on their first safari to Zimbabwe or wherever it is, and they whack one, and you know they're like, hey, it's no big deal. I got one uh then the next day I shot this and did that. I think before I got my first one, if I recall, I had 37 nights in a leopard blind. These were leopard blinds that had, you know, a leopard coming to the bait. And I never got one. I finally did get one eventually, but it was a, you know, average one, nothing big. I then went another five or six years without one. We finally got a chance to hunt in this very nice area in Tanzania. And this leopard, they had been baiting him away from the village to stop him from raiding the local villagers, goats and sheep, cattle and stuff like that. The local tracker that was helping us said, you know, I know where this one is and, you know, he'll, I can get him to come in and he's really 
really big, blah, blah, blah. Well, for anybody who's been to Africa, sometimes the trackers tell you what they think you want to hear, not necessarily what's correct. But uh, this gentleman was uh, true to his word. We hung a kudu up, kudu leg, and put the trail cameras up. And there he was that night, just like that, like clockwork. So we gave him another three days of uh, trying to get him to come in during the daylight. And I will say that the trail cameras have really revolutionized the leopard hunting because the good news is just like with any other animals that you catch on a trail camera, you can see exactly what it is, whether it's a female, whether it's a big male, average, whatever, and you can pursue from there. So we were able to actually get some video of the uh, leopard coming and going. And uh, once he started moving into daylight, then we got set up and the rest, as they say, is history, but uh, just a huge, huge leopard. Uh, one of these ones, I could, I literally could not pick it up off the ground without help, uh, just grabbing it by the front legs. And I think in the book, there's a picture of me trying to hold him up and I'm trying to get a smile on my face while I'm <laughs> gritting my teeth to hold him up. But uh, just a fabulous trip. And I think they're one of the coolest animals that there is. Well, I agree. And, and for the listeners out there, uh, you want to hit the show notes because I have a link to the Rugged Expedition website where you can order the book, Adventures in Rugged Places. And there's great pictures in there. And, and as Alan said, there's a really good picture of him holding that leopard up. And it's a big leopard. It's a very, very big leopard, a beautiful one. So uh, absolutely stunning animal uh, as a for any trophy collection. And I think that uh, one thing, one of the themes that we've tried to use in the books is that you know, uh, my books are much like Playboy, where the pictures are better than the writing. So a good photo <laughs> will make up for <laughs> will make up for some marginal writing. But well, the writing's definitely not marginal. The writing's fantastic. <laughs> uh, and before we go talk about some of your books, uh, one of the things I, that you brought up in this, and I want to stir the pot a little bit on some controversy, is mm-hmm. you talk about your favorite rifle and probably what you any hunter going to Africa should take for maybe their only rifle. And uh, which one was that that you happened to mention? Uh, that would be the three seventy five. I don't have to think much about that one. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I think I opened the article with something like, okay, I'm stepping out on the limb and I can hear the chainsaw running behind me because there's probably no more, uh, no item that's discussed more around campfires or in the press than which caliber is the best one and these kinds of things. And, uh, I, by the way, I'm not a big, uh, multiple rifle, multiple caliber guy. So, and I'm not an expert on them by any means. I can only attest to what works, you know, after hunting a lot. And, uh, I've sure found that the 375 for me in Africa is, the go-to rifle, if for no other reason, then you can always get ammo for a 375 H and H. I know there's a lot of hot rod 375s also, but when it comes to the H and H, I don't care what country you're in. I guarantee you they could scrounge up a box of shells and it is going to happen. If you've been to Africa and they haven't lost your bags yet, it's coming. <laughs> uh, I can't even count the number of times uh, that I've had bags lost where I don't end up with any ammo. And if you end up there and you've got a 3378 or some other hot rod 375 mega hootie, you know, caliber, you're not going to get any ammo and uh, you have to deal with that. And certainly you can borrow somebody's gun in this snap, but it's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I like that caliber and it's been very successful as far as, uh, you know, if you shoot some of these copper bullets like the Barnes triple shocks or, uh, 
you know, the Acubon, some of these other ones that hold together. I've used them on everything from dick dicks to elephants. And, uh, you know, the 375 just punches a hole right through, you know, the small stuff. And not that I recommend shooting dick dicks with it, but um, <laughs> we did have a uh, episode where we were out uh, hunting lesser kudu. And all of a sudden, here's the world record dick dick stand there chewing a leaf looking at you and you know you got a 375 so what the hell but <laughs> yeah it's a kind yeah, of opportunity you got it and uh and they're super accurate you know i mean it's very comfortable out to a distance so yeah i figured i might as well throw my hat in the ring with the rifle discussion but uh i realistically only shoot three rifles i i shoot a seven millimeter a 375 and a 577 for the big stuff but uh that's that's kind of i got a whole closet full of guns and that's the only three I use, but well, it's a compelling case, and and if for nothing else, the ammo is exactly spot on. I, well, I have a three seven five Ruger, not the H and H. I went to. I've only been to Africa one time. I went to Zimbabwe, and we had a few hours before my plane took off. And the guide said, "Hey, do you want to go see the gun store in Bulawayo?" And I said, "Sure." Mm-hmm. So we went over there, and it turned out to be about a 15 by 15 room that serviced a town of a million plus people. And ammo was priced not by the box, but by the round. And so I could see where you want something where you're going to be able to find it because it was not like you walked into a Cabela's or a Bass Pro and there was ungodly amounts of ammo. There was there was a little bit of this, a little bit of that, and a little bit of this, and, and that was it. Um, yep. So I can certainly understand that and, and certainly appreciate that. So I hope people uh, consider that as you go and look at some of these bigger, as you said, hot rod calibers. Get what's very plentiful, especially if you're going to somewhere that's kind of out there. And I think the other thing that's important on trips, too, is, you know, I'm not saying not have as many rifles as a guy can afford to have, but knowing your rifle and feeling comfortable with it and being able to make those snapshots that we all are going to have to do eventually. That's another reason for having one that you've had for a while that you're comfortable with, that you've had it to the range. You've been out in situations where you're shooting it offhand. You're comfortable with the scope relief and things like that, that, um, I sometimes have seen guys in camps where they show up and they haven't even run a box of shells through it yet, and yet they're going to go out and spend a fortune on a couple species, and they miss three times and can't figure out what's wrong, and then they go back and check it, you know, this kind of stuff. So it's important for the traveling hunter to make sure that he's comfortable with what he's using, that he's happy with the caliber, and that he's not just buying it because his buddy talked him into getting some new rifle, that kind of thing. Very true. Know the rifle. Mm -hmm. With your show... You did and made a big change this year with it. You had been five seasons, was it, on network television? And tell the listeners what you've done now. We made the decision because of the the way that television is going with all the Netflix out there and the YouTube channels and all that. And it's certainly a growing uh, market to pull away from the networks and move over to the YouTube platform. And it's been a resounding success. Mainly, I think, our huge viewership surge has been because a lot of people don't get cable television for starters. Both the channels are not accessible to everybody in America, let alone around the world. And now that we've moved over since December, we've had over 500,000 views to our channel growing daily. I mean, 
I, I don't know actually what the total number is today, but uh, you know we'll pick up five six thousand views a day uh, to the channel, so it's really growing. And it, and as we're releasing shows to the channel, which we're doing every two weeks, uh, some new material, some older material. The thing is, is for us in the market of around the world audience, is that what was playing on the network, and now when we put it on YouTube, people can watch that that never had the ability to watch it before. So it's been really exciting. We've done a little bit of branding with advertisers in it, but we're not running a full 30-second commercial. That's been a very successful method of doing it. It doesn't interrupt the flow of the show, but we're still supporting those that support us, and that's the game. Obviously, you can't do it for free, and you've got to pay producers and cameramen, and you know, hopefully there's a little bit left over for the so-called talent, but uh, it's a... Uh, it's really been successful and we're really excited about it. I would be happy to be bragging about having 100,000 views, let alone 500,000, and we're only what, into our fifth month. It's unbelievable. We're picking up new subscribers every day, and it's the wave of the future. Folks can watch when they want. Uh, they can see other videos that are on there. They're similar genres. It's I think, you know, I, I can't predict what's going to happen in cable television. It certainly is a viable medium to certain demographics, especially uh, older folks that aren't hip to the, you know, the Internet and the YouTube channels and other channels like that. We're going to continue to pursue it. And the other thing that we like about not being on network is that we can edit the videos to the length and the time that we want. And we're not so caught up in the editing that we had to do for TV, where you have to cut at a certain time for these three commercials. You have to cut for another time for these two commercials and on and on. You're really restricted in what you can do. Now, if we have a great seven-minute show, we put it on. If we have a great 30-minute show, we put it on, or 35 minutes, whatever it is. Through the years, I can can tell you we've left so much great stuff on the cutting room floor because of having to meet network restrictions and guidelines. We're able now to do whatever works best to make a good show, and shows aren't always 30 minutes long. Really exciting. Yeah, I would, the big outdoor networks, you only had exposure to, to the states, correct? They weren't broadcast in Mexico. They weren't broadcast in Canada. They, they were specifically to the states, as far as I'm aware. Exactly. And as an example, right now, we have 17,000 plus viewers from Pakistan. You know, the, the analytics that you can pull up on uh, YouTube are incredible. We know, you know, where they're from, how long they watch, all these kinds of things. We have Australian viewers. We have a lot of European viewers that don't get any kind of outdoor television there. Obviously, there's no outdoor television in Pakistan or places like that either. We have, I think, about 11,000 viewers in Russia. You wouldn't think there was enough people that speak English to watch it or Maybe they just turned the volume down and watched The Killing. But yeah, it's really, really something to be able to touch the whole world. And we have fans now. I'll get emails from all over of people that you go, wow, the guy's in Romania and he's sending me an email that he just watched a show. So it's pretty cool. It is. Uh, this show being broadcast across the Internet, uh, like what you've mentioned, I have a rather large following in Pakistan. And I don't know anybody in Pakistan, nor have I been there. And as such, I'm waiting for the NSA to knock on my door one day. Uh, <laughs> But they do like the show, so power to them. They they seem to really enjoy the American hunting access. So it's been a win-win. It just again allows you to share your content across that much larger of a platform. Yeah, it's it's exciting. I'm going to switch over on some of the content from the show. You just released a new video on YouTube. I think a week or two ago. You're known for making some funny 
videos, music videos. This is called Bubble Wants to Be on TV. And you have a little fun with Shockey and, and Carter in this one. Tell me a little bit about the concept or the thought process on that. Well, what happened was we were uh, talking about everybody literally wants to be on TV these days and certainly on, the, on YouTube. Everyone thinks they can do it better than you can, just like that's the reason why I got into the business. Now we're in a situation where I have the other guys doing to me what I was doing to them. So I thought, well, let's have a little fun. What would Bubba think if he was watching TV and he decided he could be just like Ivan Carter or he could be just like Jim Shockey or Craig Boddington? So we had a blast. We were filming a, a music video at the time for some another project we're working on. And so we switched the cameras over and got the gear and got some costumes out. And I was able to uh, convince my fiance to be the uh, lady in the house coat and that and with the curlers in her hair and I don't think she'll ever do that one again. She said, I want to be the beautiful woman in it, not the one in the curlers in the future. But <laughs> excuse me, we had a lot of laughs with it and uh, it's been real successful and people like it. We played it at the uh, Beretta Conservation Award Ceremony last year and to the audience there and that got it going. It, it was great. Jim loved it and so did Ivan. Of course, Craig, they're all good friends. So we had a we had a blast with it. Yeah, it's uh, pretty good. And I'll have, a, again, a link in the show notes to it. You got two videos out there that I'm going to say are probably neck and neck the two funniest videos that, to me. One is your Boagra. That video cracks me up. Yeah. <laughs> The first time I watched it, and I've shared that with more people that write back and say, that are not, they don't watch hunting TV. Who is this? And so then I'll send them one of your hunting videos afterwards, a link to the, your YouTube channel. But the other one is video you did in Africa with Shulk Tate, the other hunters that escaping me, the rap video. Mac Padgett. Mac Padgett. Yeah, the... That was kind of a, uh, we've gotten a lot of feedback, both uh, positive and, you know, people questioning my uh, <laughs> morality after that one. But yeah, we had a great time with that. That was another one that kind of evolved. Uh, my brother, Monty Smith, who is uh, in one of the Uganda shows, he has a recording studio, which really helps us, a music recording studio. And he's been a professional musician his whole life and has toured with all kinds of guys from Tower of Power to Johnny Winter and, you know, that kind of thing. So he's been around the block and has a fabulous studio. So when, we, when we're working on projects or we're working on music for the show, we go into his studio and do it. And he's also one of the funniest human beings on earth, has a great imagination and helps us a lot. So we, we were in there and we started goofing around with rapping uh, because, you know, let's say middle-aged white dudes aren't exactly the, you know, people that typically do rapping. We got going with this thing and one thing led to another and it was a spur of the moment. And then we added to it, of course, as it went. Well, then we needed to produce some video to go with it. So it was filmed in Uganda. And it wasn't until we were done filming that the professional hunter reminded us that uh, being a homosexual in Uganda is a death sentence. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> Here we've been dressing like girls and stuff like that for, you know, we had to be the hose in the video. That made it even funnier. But anyhow, we had a great time. And the African gentleman that's in there with us is actually the head uh, game scout for an, the area we were in in Uganda. And he loved the whole concept. We told him, yeah, if you want to be in it, you got to carry your AK-47 and, you know, you have to be the bad guy in there. And so he played right along with it. And he's been a great supporter. And, you know, we've had a lot of laughs with him. And I've been back there several times since. Yeah, we're, uh, we made a little hit right in that corner of Uganda with the thing. So It's hilarious because here's this very stern-looking uh, gentleman holding an AK-47 with these gold glasses on. And it just... And then what I'd like to know is, 
how did you get those costumes into Uganda if that's the issue? <laughs> I'll tell you, I was a little fearful that if they opened my bags, uh, you know, and they saw all these wigs and lipstick and, you know, falsies and things like that, that we, I might have a hard time, you know, convincing them that, no, I'm making a funny video, seriously. But, uh, yeah, luckily they didn't. They were more concerned about the guns and the ammo, so they didn't look in the bag. <laughs> it had all the props in it. Yeah, and hopefully you left or uh, burned all those props to try and not sneak them back out. <laughs> yeah, I left them with the uh, local ladies in the village and uh, made a big hit there with all the wrap uh, uh, uh bling was a big hit i'm not sure they got the point of it that it was actually a prop but they were happy to get some gold sunglasses so that's always important all the accoutrements were made them happy <laughs> that's right uh yeah you don't i i cannot imagine that that is probably stuff they have ever come across in uganda before <laughs> so yeah i'll have a link to that video and uh all i can say to the listeners is just watch it if you walk away and you aren't laughing after watching that you really need to have your funny bone examined because something's wrong with you. Uh, because that's so many of these hunting videos as you are done almost documentary style. Yours is really done as a, like, here's a bunch of buddies and we're just out hunting and what we come across is what we come across. And that's what makes your show so unique and so, so entertaining. Thank you. Now, on top of that, you just got back from a interesting hunt in Pakistan. Can you tell the listeners a little bit about that? Yeah, it was a wonderful uh, trip. I've been to Pakistan. I think this was my seventh trip. I've collected uh, all the species that are there except the Himalayan ibex, which lives up in the corner where China, Afghanistan, and Pakistan come together up in the north. And it's a really beautiful ibex, uh, heavy horned, real heavy body and beautiful coat. And I went over there with a friend of mine, Alan Sackman, and he didn't have one either. Uh, one of the crazy things about that area is you have to pass through an area that's got some military action uh, to get to where you want to go. Once you get to your destination, it's very safe, no problem or anything like that. But it's the first time I've ever been hunting where we had a army escort both front and back for 12 hours that drove us through uh, this zone it's going to be an ex uh we have some exciting footage a lot of it's from hidden cameras in the car and stuff like that we didn't want to be too blatant with the big cameras but it's not every day you've got you know four guys with machine guns in front of you and another four behind you you know in the lead car and the follow car so that that was a little bit of an exciting uh, portion of it but also, that area in the mountains where you go is some of the most incredible scenery. You're where the Karakoram Mountains, the Himalayas, you know, oh, and the Hindu Kush, where they all come together. And it's the steepest, most gorgeous terrain you've ever seen. Also, of course, some of the hardest there is to hunt in because of the climbing involved. But we were able to take just a monster. It was, uh, and I was there just to collect one. I wasn't there to shoot a, you know, I just wanted to get a good hunt and have decent weather and, you know, get it on film. But turned out to be a real dandy. And I can't wait for the show to come out. It's probably going to be another three months by the time it comes to the, the pecking order. But really fun. Uh, Pakistan, a great country. And also, you know, the people in Pakistan, I know we all have to listen to the press, and that's a whole other subject of, you know, the lion press and what we hear here in America. But, you know, I never have run across one person that didn't like America when I was in Pakistan. And I'm talking about in the villages. A lot of people speak English in Pakistan. They still teach it in the schools as one of the languages. And they're like everybody else around the world. You know, the majority of them want to make a living. They want to feed their families. 
and they want peace. And when you sit down around the fire with them or stay in the villages, they can't do enough for you. They're really good folks. And obviously there's that radical element, uh, no different than we have the same in America. Sure. Uh, radical elements that cause problems for us and the other parts of the world. And it's just on how the press twists it. But uh, overall, I think that uh, they're, as I say, great folks. I have no fear when I'm there of uh, any problems. Obviously, it's nice to have the Army just to make sure everything goes okay. <laughs> but it's, it's a great place to go. If anyone's thinking about going there, I would certainly recommend it. And there's a lot of different stuff over there to hunt. So great spot. Now, are they happy, they being, I guess, the government, to have Americans come in to, to video to show Pakistan and show it in a different light? Yeah, it was no problem at all. Um, the Obviously, you can't film the sensitive areas like the uh, military units and, and stuff like that. And But uh, they're very pro-hunting the government. They have a program there in, in Pakistan, which is really where good, that's based on the U.S. and the African model, that they've convinced the villagers, let's take a place like where I was at this last time, you've got a village of 350 people. Behind them is these mountain ranges, and that's where they take their domestic sheep and goats. Well, while they're in there, and most people have a firearm there of some sort uh, to protect their animals and themselves in case there's a problem. But, you know, for one bullet, they can shoot an Ibex and eat him for lunch or dinner and not have to kill their own animals. Well, through the years, in the old days, that's what they would do. And of course, the Ibex would get hammered or and or the sheep, whatever it was, whatever name your species that's in Pakistan. Well, now Nowadays, the government pays them on the spot for that animal when a hunter comes in and kills it. So now they've got an incentive, and it's a substantial number. In the case of the Ibex, it's a $8,000, the equivalent of 8000 U.S., that they pay the head chief in the village when I killed that Ibex. Wow. Well, all of a sudden, you're talking about probably two years plus of income to a village and all they got to do is quit shooting ibex and we could see the ibex from the village you know on the mountainside in all directions so it's really working and it shows uh, that you know us as hunters by going to these places that we're actually conserving these animals and giving them the locals an incentive to not whack them and it's really paid off on all the species whether it's markor or whether it's the ibex uh, in the lowlands they've got quite a bit of planes game and stuff, black buck and hog deer and things like that. So the system is really working good. It's a very game rich area because of the programs that the Pakistan government's put in. So, and they stand there and they issue the money right in front of you. So it's not one of these bureaucratic shuffles. There's a dude with 8,000 bucks in his pocket waiting for you to kill the thing so he can get rid of it. So <laughs> yeah. uh, there's somebody waiting for you to kill it so they can get it. That's right. Yeah. That's really a huge incentive um, $8,000 in America is a lot of money. In a place like Pakistan, as you said, that's probably two-plus years' worth of income. Uh, I could imagine yeah, that if somebody kills a, yeah. uh, one of those Ibex that's not hunting them, that chieftain sees $8,000 go poof, not real happy. Exactly. So they've got a huge incentive to protect them. Especially in a subsistence economy, you know, where you're looking at a situation where they have no uh, outside income at all. You know, it's really goats, sheep, and what they can grow in the three months that that's not frozen. So uh, it's it's great. It's really nice to see it working and to see the numbers of animals that you see in a place like that. So there's a lot of countries around the world that could learn a lesson from them. 
Yeah, I just watched uh, one of your episodes in Pakistan yesterday. It was, uh, I think you were after Markor, mm-hmm. and you were making a joke about you thought the guy behind you was trying to push you up because he kept having his hands raised in the air, and he was actually praying to Allah or something. <laughs> and I just chuckled because I said, uh, that's a classic. Yeah, yeah. Not, it was so steep on that trail that uh, I thought he was trying to give me a hand, but it was that he was actually looking up to the, to the heavens. So when I saw him doing that, I figured I better throw a quick one in too and say a little prayer while I was walking up the, the trail. So uh, those Markor live in the steepest terrain on the face of the earth. It's uh, it's just incredible. So Well, and it's but, neat. You're uh, so high up that when you shoot, the viewer can actually watch the bullet hit the Markor. It's, isn't that unbelievable, that vapor trail like that? It's such a neat thing. You're sitting there going, because you watch a whitetail hunt down here in Texas or wherever in the United States, and you're, you're not generally going to see the bullet hit. But at your altitude you were at, that, that trail, that bullet left, really just, you're sitting there going, wow, that's pretty cool. Yeah, yeah that was something. And, you know, the other thing that's funny about that shot is that our main big camera had broken, and that was actually shot with a small handy cam. And sitting in the snow, not even on a stand, we just put it in there and figured, well, if we get it, we get it. And then it turned out to be that incredible footage of, you know, the bullet flying to the air. So we got lucky on that one. Now, where you're telling me that they, the villagers get paid right out as soon as you, you kill one of the animals, now I understand why those guys were hugging and high-fiving you so fast. Yeah, everybody was happy, trust me. They were happy you were successful because they all knew they had a big payday coming. Yeah. Well, with all the hunting that you've done, on top of that, not being busy enough, you're also a pretty prolific writer, both on the fiction and the nonfiction side. You have, is it four hunting books out, but only three of them are in press right now? Uh, no, there's. Uh, I have four. Four hunting books, yes, and three of them are in press. One of them is uh, the original one, Close Calls, uh, is not available anymore. I think you, you can get them on Amazon or people reselling them, that kind of a thing, but uh, they're they're not being published anymore. And then I have three novels, uh, which have been doing really, really well because uh, it's to a larger audience. Of course, the hunting books are only for us, you know, knuckleheads that hunt, but the uh, novels uh, serve a larger audience, and they have some hunting in them as well, and adventure stories about uh, our hero, Matt Simmons, who, you know, is trying to save the world and himself from himself. You know, it's written for uh, us guys, uh, you know, simple adventures. And the first one starts out with him in Central Africa and his young wife gets kidnapped and he's got to go save her. So the adventure just starts from there. But uh, it's been real fun to do. And they're also available on eBooks, which has been a huge uh, change for us in sales that, you know, so many people now watch, or excuse me, not watch, but read on tablets. You know, it, it's good. It's been really uh, um, a, a new uh, a new way for people to read for us. So, Well, there's the, and if anybody goes to ruggedexpeditions.com, on the left side is the shop, and, and from there you can access uh, the books, both the fiction. There's three of them, uh, both in hardcover. One's actually available also in paperback, and then all three of them are also available as uh, an ebook. So you really can uh, digest them in whatever form or fashion you want. Uh, I've got your hunting books here, and I, I've read Adventures in Rugged Places. I have not gotten to the other two yet, uh, but this book was really, really good, and I, I can't recommend it enough. Thank you. And so between the writing and and your hunting, you've garnered a number of awards uh 
actually for the hunting side of it. Is there any one, I, I think one was the Weatherby Award, uh, is there any one that stands out as that you're most proud of? You know, the, the hunting awards are, uh, it's a nice accolade. Uh, you know, you, you kill enough stuff and they give you a bowling trophy. So it's uh, <laughs> not not to, not to disparage any of them, but it's a, it's kind of a nice honor. Uh, unfortunately, they usually give them to you when you're a, you know, old fat guy and I haven't gotten quite there yet, but, uh, now it's been, it's really nice. Uh, Weatherby, of course, is kind of the epitome of, uh, you know, the Oscar of hunting and a huge honor to receive it several years ago. And, um, some of the other ones as well, they're all, you know, wonderful. The Ovis Awards and, of course, the uh, Conklin Award, for which we call the Tough Guy Award. They're they're all nice, but, uh, you know, it's not something you can really go after intentionally. Uh, at some stage, a guy might do it and devote years to it. But uh, I was able to do it uh, over a number of years and, you know, accumulate uh, a variety of species. Luckily for me, I've always been one of those guys that I like to go to different places and do, you know, different stuff. So if that meant going to Ghana to chase something around, that was a little, you know, diker in the jungle, great. If it meant going to Liberia for an exploratory hunt to see what was there, super. You know, and if you got something that was oddball and new, uh, great. Of course, Africa's got so many animals there, different kinds that that was, you know, an awesome place to go to and, you know, go to all the different areas where the different species were at. So it, it's been awesome. There's still some new ones out there that uh, are still chaseable and uh, that I don't, that I have not done that adventure yet. And I'm looking forward to continuing on uh, with what we've been doing. And of course, going forward, Cape Buffalo hunting is always a blast and uh, it always makes for good films. So really looking forward to continuing with that as well. But Sure. And one thing I want to jump back and let listeners know is that with any of the books, you've been very generous and philanthropic with the proceeds from the books. And and tell listeners what you do with those. Well, I've, I've got a philosophy that we as hunters have got to give back. And we've got to give back to conservation. We've got to give back to the organizations that are keeping our hunters' rights. And whether that's Dallas or Safari Club International, uh, organizations like that, the Grand Slam Club, there's a lot of good being done out there and they need our help. And they need our help both uh, in time devoted to those organizations and also financially. You know, we've got a, a big fight in front of us with the uh, anti-hunters and the people that want to take our right to hunt away from us. And granted, right now we have a very hunter-friendly administration for the first time in a long, long time. And uh, hopefully we'll turn some of these things around with our uh, new Secretary of the Interior. But it's never-ending. You know, these organizations need to be fighting the wacko bunny huggers at every level, whether it's state level or internationally or nationally. I tried to come up with a way that I could help out as much as possible. And I decided when I started writing the books to uh, dedicate all the proceeds from it to these uh, organizations to continue to help them. And luckily, people like the books. And so we raised a bunch of money for conservation and protecting hunters' rights. And, you know, it's an, it's an honor to be able to write that check every year to them from the proceeds. So uh, when you uh, buy one of the books, whether it's an ebook or another one, know that it's going to a good cause. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's nice to be able to do it. Which makes it that much more enjoyable as a, as a, a reader and, and a hunter to know that the funds flow through to something, something very worthwhile. Well, I want to be respectful of your time. I appreciate the, the time you spent with the listeners 
if somebody wanted to get in touch with you, uh, what's generally the easiest way through your website, Rugged Expeditions? Yep, ruggedexpeditions.com, and uh, we've got contact information there. Any questions? Uh, there's some interactive stuff there as well. If anybody's looking for a packing list to, to check off before you go on your next trip, we got some uh, goodies in there about that, which is I, I actually use it myself every trip. And uh, yeah, there's some videos in there and some other pictures in that. But yeah, go there, check that out. And then, uh, of course, the YouTube channel, we're going to keep releasing stuff every couple weeks to that so there'll always be something fresh and if uh, listeners subscribe to the YouTube channel they'll get the notices as they come through so and thanks a million for all you're doing for the outdoor world and for hunting and oh. we really appreciate all you're doing Jason. Every little bit we can get out there helps. I appreciate your time and as always it was a pleasure catching up with you and hopefully I'll get to see you this year at the Dallas Safari Club show if you make it. We'll be there for sure. You have a wonderful then. morning. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Come early spring, it's getting green Fisher on the bed and Hear those turkeys gobble It's ringing in my head The winter rides bass boat Here comes another year Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Oh, we command the outdoors Yeah, we command the outdoors Come summertime, we're feeling fine Fishing on the lake Flipping jigs in Carolina rigs From early morning till real late Bonfires on Creek Bank Kick back a couple beers yeah, we command the outdoors around here Yeah, we command the outdoors Yeah, we command the outdoors Next year's doves until you know winter's on the way Brushing blinds and deer stands The fever starts to creep Fill our freezers full of ducks Lots of tender deer Yeah, we command the outdoors around here Yeah, we command the outdoors Yeah, we So grab your guns and shells, boys Put on your camouflage Cause we command the outdoors around here We command the outdoors